0: Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit Johnhiltonii.com slash seeking Jesus. Have you ever looked at an image and then zoomed in so close that you couldn't really tell what the image was anymore? Sometimes it's helpful to step back so that we can see the bigger picture. That's true in life, and it's also true with the scriptures. Sometimes we examine the scriptures verse by verse, even word for word, which is good, but it can also be helpful to step back and look at big picture themes from scriptural authors. Today we'll focus on big picture messages from Matthew, Luke, and John, and the aspects of Jesus Christ that they emphasize. You might be wondering, We spent a whole class on Mark. Why are we cramming Matthew, Luke, and John into just one class? Here's the reason. In future classes, we'll spend a lot more time on Matthew, Luke, and John than we will on Mark. For example, we'll have a future class on the sermons of Jesus. In that class, we'll look at a sermon from Matthew, a sermon from Luke, and a sermon from John. But there aren't really any sermons in Mark that are unique to Mark. When we have a class on the parables, we'll look at parables from Matthew and Luke that are unique to those two Gospels. But Mark doesn't have very many unique parables, so I wanted to have a class dedicated to overviewing key themes from Mark. Today, we'll more briefly talk about Matthew, Luke, and John, acknowledging that in future classes, we will go into more depth on their writings. Let's begin with Matthew. Some people might wonder— If Mark was most likely written first, why is Matthew the first book of the New Testament? That's a great question. One reason is that some early Christians thought that Matthew was written first. Another reason might be that Matthew provides a bridge between the Old and New Testaments. Notice how we see this bridge in three themes from the Gospel according to Matthew. First, as we talked about a couple of classes ago, Matthew tells us Jesus is the Son of David. And he really emphasizes that connection in the genealogy and throughout his writings. Second, Matthew emphasizes the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There's about a dozen times when he'll tell us something happens and then say, this happened, that it might be fulfilled, which was written by the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah or Zechariah." And then he'll quote the prophecy from the Old Testament. For Matthew, that was his current testament and he used it as a powerful way to help his readers see that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Matthew alludes to Old Testament events and connects them with Jesus more than twice as often as any other gospel author. A related Matthew theme is that Matthew connects Christ and Moses. Moses had said, The Lord said unto me, Moses, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. In Third Nephi, Jesus refers to this prophecy and is explicit that the prophecy is about him. Matthew isn't as explicit as Jesus was in Third Nephi, but he connects Jesus and Moses through several examples. For instance, as infants, both Moses and Jesus were in danger from wicked rulers. Moses went into and out of Egypt, as did Jesus. Moses and Jesus both fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses received the new law on Mount Sinai. Jesus taught a new law on a different mountain. These parallels help us see Jesus as a new Moses. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't put aside the law of Moses. In fact, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them The same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law of Moses had set a certain standard, a bar to be cleared. Not only does Jesus support the law of Moses, he raises the bar. For example, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, It hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. We'll continue this conversation more in a future class when we discuss the Sermon on the Mount But for our purposes today, we can remember that in Matthew's account, we see Jesus as the son of David, that Jesus has come to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, and that Jesus is a new Moses. To some of us, these might seem like pretty boring themes. Jesus is connected to David, Moses, and the Old Testament? So what? But remember, for Matthew's readers, David was the greatest king, Moses was the greatest prophet, and much of their lives revolved around what we call the Old Testament. In fact, you might say that by Matthew showing us the connections between Jesus and David, Moses, in the Old Testament, it's a way of saying, Jesus Christ is everything. And that's a theme worth remembering. Let's shift to Luke. At the very beginning of Luke's account, he says, I decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you. The author tells us he's done his research, and more than any of the other gospel authors, Luke gives historical details. It's also good to know that Luke is the first of a two-part volume. Luke and Acts are written by the same author. Notice how in Luke chapter 1, Luke says that he's writing to a person named Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God, and that might be the name of a specific individual, or it's also possible that it's written generally to all the people who love God. Acts begins with these words, The former treatise, meaning Luke, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. This helps us see that Acts is a continuation of Luke. My guess is that most of us have never read Luke and Acts back to back. If we read Acts, we read it after reading John. Sometime, you might try reading Luke and Acts in succession. If you do, you'll notice some parallels and connections between the two books because Luke writes them as a cohesive work. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament and if you take Luke and Acts together, Luke is the author of more material than anyone else in the New Testament. He writes about 25% of the New Testament. Today, we'll focus on three themes in Luke. Christ's relationship with women, his focus on the poor, and his outreach to all of God's children, including the marginalized. Let's explore each of these themes. There are several stories about Christ and women that are unique to Luke. Let's look at two of them. In Luke chapter 8, we read, Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. This passage tells us that many women helped provide for Jesus financially as they traveled from town to town. This is an important point. It takes financial resources to fund a ministry. Women were a key part of that. One of these women is Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa. This is Herod as in Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was the ruler in Galilee. His steward, like a house manager, could be somebody who has a powerful position his wife, Joanna, is a follower of Jesus. Do you like hearing about people's backstories? Like in the musical Wicked. Sorry to compare Joanna with Elphaba, but I just think it would be fascinating to know more about Joanna's story. How did she find Jesus? How did that affect her family relationships or her husband's job with Herod Antipas? We can't answer those questions, but we do know a little bit more about Joanna. Jump over with me to Luke 23, where we read about Christ on the cross. In verse 49, it says, But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. In addition, Joanna is specifically named as being present at the empty tomb. She and other women were with Christ in Galilee. They followed him all the way to Calvary. Likely they witnessed his miracles, such as the feeding of the 5,000. They were probably present at the triumphal entry. Perhaps they were at the Last Supper and in Gethsemane. These women were a crucial part of Christ's ministry and are one example of a group of women that Luke highlights. The story of Mary and Martha is another account that's unique to Luke. Let's first read Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. One way to approach this account is to learn more about what church leaders have said about it. If you remember in a previous class, we talked about the website scriptures.byu.edu. This website or the app scripture citation index allows us to find all the times where church leaders have talked about a specific scripture story. By using this tool, I found a great quote from Sister Parkin, the former General Relief Society president. She said, the savior's response strikingly clarified what mattered most. On that evening in Martha's home, The good part was not in the kitchen, it was at the Lord's feet. Dinner could wait. Like Mary, I hunger to feast at the Savior's feet. While like Martha, I need to somehow find the laundry room floor, empty my inbox, and serve my husband something other than cold pizza. I have 15 grandchildren whose tender little spirits and daily challenges I want to better understand. Yet I also have a slightly demanding church calling. I don't have lots of time. Like all of you, I have to choose. We are all trying to choose the good part which cannot be taken from us to balance the spiritual and the temporal in our lives. Wouldn't it be easy if we were just choosing between visiting teaching or robbing a bank? Instead, our choices are often more subtle. We must choose between many worthy options. Mary and Martha are you and me. They are every sister in Relief Society. These two loved the Lord and wanted to show that love. On this occasion, it seems to me that Mary expressed her love by hearing his word, while Martha expressed hers by serving him. Martha thought she was doing right and that her sister should be helping her. I don't believe the Lord was saying there are Marthas and there are Marys. Jesus did not dismiss Martha's concern, but instead redirected her focus by saying, choose that good part. And what is that? We should look to the great mediator and hearken unto his great commandments. The one needful thing is to choose eternal life. We choose daily. How might this passage apply in your life? In our lives, we have lots of things going on, many important priorities. But one thing is of more importance than the rest. Returning to Luke, Jesus said to Martha, You are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part. What things worry and distract us today? How could we focus more on Jesus? the only needful thing. Let's turn to another theme from Luke, the emphasis on Jesus' outreach to the poor. A common temptation for many of us is to seek for wealth. When my son Levi was four years old, he came up to me and he said, Dad, I want you. I thought, how sweet. He really likes me. Thank you, Levi, I said. Then he replied, no, I mean, I want your money. I'm trying to get your money every day. Whether we're four or 44 or 84, it can be tempting to focus our efforts on getting rather than giving. There are numerous examples of teachings from or about Jesus that specifically talk about helping the poor, and many of them are unique to Luke. I want to highlight that these passages aren't talking about the poor in heart. They're talking about the financially poor, people with desperate temporal needs. Let's explore two parables that are unique to Luke. The first one is about a rich man who builds bigger barns. Come with me to Luke chapter 12. Because context is often very important in understanding parables, let's start with what happens just before Christ gives the parable. In verse 13 we read, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. So the setting of the parable is an argument about money. Jesus responded, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Notice how self-centered the man is. He's focused all of his energy on stuff, but life is more than material possessions. There's no mention of helping others, no mention of God, only a focus on what he wants. The parable concludes, But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is a pretty self-explanatory parable. The guy is focused on accumulating wealth, but when he finally gets all the wealth he wants, he dies. So what was the point of building up his wealth? He won't be able to enjoy it. He should have focused on building heavenly treasures. We'll talk about application in just a moment, but first, let's look at another parable that is unique to Luke. Again, we'll start with a context. Come with me to Luke chapter 16. In verse 13, Jesus says, No slave can serve two masters, For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed him. So he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts, for what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. Thus, in the context of a discussion about money, we have the following parable. Christ said, There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. What does that mean, fared sumptuously? Let's just say he's not ordering from the dollar menu. These are nice meals. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Pause the parable for a moment. Isn't it interesting how Jesus mentions the poor man, Lazarus, by name, but leaves the rich man anonymous? Today, we might be more likely to recognize the name of a wealthy celebrity, but not know the name of a local panhandler. Jesus named the poor person. That's significant. We might be tempted to disconnect from this parable because none of us are so heartless as to throw crumbs at a starving person who's right in front of us. I mean, if you walked outside your front door and saw dogs licking a starving person, you would help, right? But perhaps we can see Lazarus still at our doors. In the world today, starvation and death from preventable and treatable diseases kill millions of people each year. In our modern world of instant access, is it possible that those who are starving, whether they are our next-door neighbors or our brothers and sisters on another continent, could be considered to be lying at our gate, pleading for our help? Real financial needs exist. Back to the parable. receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Why did the rich man go to hell? As far as we know, he didn't harm Lazarus. He didn't even get mad when Lazarus ate the crumbs from his table. Perhaps the problem was that the rich man did nothing. He was indifferent to Lazarus's plight. Do you remember some of our previous discussions about intertextuality? This is where two texts connect with each other, In the parable, we read that the rich man was in hell. He lifted up his eyes, being in torments. Note the connection between this parable and Jesus speaking in the modern day. The earth is full, and there is enough and to spare. If any man shall take of the abundance which I have made, and impart not his portion, according to the law of my gospel, unto the poor and the needy, he shall, with the wicked, lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. Did you catch the parallel phrase? It seems like Jesus is saying in the Doctrine and Covenants that if you and I don't contribute our portion, we will wind up like the rich man in the parable. A key question then is, what is my portion? Doctrine and Covenants 104 doesn't spell out exactly what your portion is. That's between you and the Lord. But it does give us some important guidance. One principle is that everything you and I have belongs to God. In Doctrine and Covenants 104 verse 14 We read, I, the Lord, built the earth. All things therein are mine. A second principle is that God has made you and me stewards over the things that we've been given. The Lord said, I make everyone a steward over earthly blessings. You have some money, some clothes, maybe a laptop and a car. Those are part of your stewardship. It's not your laptop. It's God's laptop. He's just made you a steward over it. A third principle is that we will be held accountable for our stewardships. In Doctrine and Covenants 104 verse 13, we read, I the Lord make everyone accountable. In other words, one day God will ask us what we've done with the things he's put in our stewardship. There are hundreds of millions of people in the world who need our help today, right now. We can't aid all of them, but many of us can probably do more than we are currently doing to help some of them. I acknowledge that how we give to others can be a complicated issue. There are no easy answers to questions like, how much should I give? What is the best way for me to help those in need? Or should I go serve in another country? Or would it be better for me to simply stay home and send money? Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught, I don't know exactly how each of you should fulfill your obligation to those who do not or cannot always help themselves. But I know that God knows and He will help you and guide you in compassionate acts of discipleship. If you are conscientiously wanting and praying and looking for ways to keep a commandment, He has given us again and again. Sometimes when we talk about serving the poor, we quickly turn to, yes, we should serve the poor. We should also serve the poor in spirit. There are people who are discouraged. We should help them too. That's true. We should help those who are poor in spirit But that's not what Jesus is talking about in these parables and in several other places in Luke. Jesus is telling us to use our financial resources to help those in need. One woman shared the following experience. The 20-year-old pink carpet in our basement was looking really ratty. I found myself worrying over how to fit a new carpet purchase into our tight budget and feeling discouraged that I needed to live with such an ugly carpet. During this time, my family served for a couple of days in another country. I wanted my children to see real poverty so they could appreciate the lives they have in America. My children's eyes were opened, and so were mine. I never saw carpet in any house or hut we visited, and I saw families who were happy with items much more worn than my basement carpet. Every time I looked at my pink carpet after our trip, instead of thinking how hard my life was, I thought of how blessed I was. International humanitarian work is a great way to serve but we can also do things closer to home. Things like serve a meal at a local food kitchen, have a garage sale to help a neighbor earn money for medical treatments, get a group together to provide a needed service for a local women and children's or homeless shelter, help refugees, drive people to medical appointments or the grocery store. Jesus consistently taught that we should help the financially poor. This is a challenging issue because on the one hand, we need to offer our portion and the need is great. On the other hand, as King Benjamin says, we shouldn't run faster than we're able. We could stray if we lean too far one way or the other. We need to receive heavenly guidance on this one. We might not be sure what God wants us to do to serve the financially poor among us, but because he's the one who gave us the stewardship, we can and should ask him what he wants us to do with our resources. Let's look at one other theme from Luke, Christ's outreach to all of God's children, even those viewed as outcasts. Luke wants us to know that even if you're on the outside, if you're a Samaritan, a publican, a sinner, Jesus is still reaching out to you. It's Luke who tells us that the angels at the birth of Christ said, joy to all people. In the temple, after seeing the baby Jesus, Simeon said, Lord, mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which you have prepared for all people, a light to the Gentiles. Only in Luke does John the Baptist say that with the coming of Christ All flesh will see the salvation of God. Can you see the emphasis? We also see this in the different genealogies of Jesus given by Matthew and Luke. In Matthew's account, he traces Christ's ancestors to Abraham. Matthew is focusing on Jesus's Jewish connections. But Luke has a different focus. His account of Christ's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Perhaps because Luke wants to highlight that the message of Jesus is for all people. Even in something as small as genealogy, you can see the differences in what Matthew and Luke want to emphasize. Consider one more example. Have you ever read Genesis 10? It's got to be one of the least read chapters. It's a list of genealogies and nations that came from Noah and his descendants. But if you count, you'll find that this list contains 70 nations that comprised all the known world. It's only in Luke that we learn that Jesus called 70 to share the gospel. There may be a connection here. 70 nations and Jesus calls 70 people to spread the word, symbolically showing that his message is to go into all the world. Seeing the Savior's outreach to all can motivate us to go and do likewise. Let's now turn to the gospel according to John. I love this book. If I had to pick my favorite gospel account, John would definitely be in my top four. Well, sorry for the bad joke, but it's hard to pick favorites. Seriously though, John is awesome because it's so unique. You could read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and feel like you're getting basically the same story. John is different. I love how at the end of John, the author tells us why he wrote the book. These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Who doesn't want to read a book that's whole purpose is to help us believe in Christ and as a result receive eternal life. In our previous class, we talked about how Mark has a relatively low Christology. On the other hand, John has a high Christology, with a focus on the divine aspects of Christ. John shows us that Christ has always existed, always knows what will happen, is always in control, and never needs help. Here are just a couple of examples. Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus, but John takes us all the way back to in the beginning and tells us of Christ's role in the creation. John records that Jesus knew all things that should come upon him, and his disciples specifically testified, we know that you know all things. Here's an interesting contrast. In Mark, when the Savior is in Gethsemane, Jesus says, Father, take away this cup from me. In Mark, it almost seems like Jesus is afraid to take the cup, showing us the human Jesus. In John, also in Gethsemane, After Peter cut off the ear of someone coming to capture the savior, Jesus says, put away your sword, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? In John, it's the divine Jesus who's saying, bring it on, I'm ready. That's just one example of how Mark and John highlight different aspects of Christ's nature. I love seeing this contrast because some days we will want to connect with the human Jesus who can understand our feelings. On other days when our lives are spinning out of control, we will seek a Savior who is totally in control. Jesus is fully human and fully divine, and reading both Mark and John can help us see these different sides of him. John is sometimes split into four sections, a prologue in John chapter 1, an epilogue in John 21, and then two major divisions. The first is the book of signs in John chapters 2 through 12. During the time that his hour is not yet come, Jesus performs seven signs, or miracles. Jesus turns water into wine, heals a noble man's son, heals a crippled man, feeds thousands, walks on water, heals a man born blind, and raises Lazarus from the dead. We'll discuss some of these miracles in future classes. For now, let's explore the miracle that took place at the Pool of Bethesda to get a feel for what John shows us about Christ through the signs he performs. In John chapter 5, we read, Now, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there's a pool, called in Hebrew, Bethesda, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. As a side note, for centuries, people did not know where in Jerusalem the Pool of Bethesda was. There was no known location where there was a pool with five porches. In fact, some scholars thought it must not exist and that perhaps John had made up this story. But in the late 1800s, this pool was discovered, and you can visit it today in Jerusalem. I wouldn't base my testimony of the New Testament on this location, but it's an interesting piece of evidence that John knew what he was talking about. So at this pool, which many people thought had healing properties, there was a man who had had an infirmity for 38 years. That's a long time. Jesus approached the man and said, Do you want to be made well? Isn't that a strange question to ask? Do you want to be made well? Of course the man wants to be made well. He's been ill for 38 years. I think in Jesus' question, we see a reminder about the importance of our desires. Think about ways in which we might be spiritually sick, perhaps even a spiritual disability we've had for 38 years. Jesus can heal us, but it often starts with our desires. Jesus asks us, do you want to be made well? The man responds to Jesus saying, I have no one to put me in the pool. Can you hear the discouragement in this man's voice? I've been sick for 38 years. I'm trying my best, but I have no one. Do you ever feel alone? This man was not alone. Jesus healed him. Through this sign, John shows us that Jesus has power over sickness, even a sickness that has lasted for 38 years. If you've been struggling for decades, if you feel like you have no one, hang on, because you have Jesus. And the Savior has promised, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So the first part of John is sometimes called the book of signs. Then the second part of John, after these seven signs have been completed, is referred to by some as the book of glory, when the hour comes and Christ lays down his life for us. Throughout John's account, there are seven I am, statements. Take a moment to ponder these I am statements. How do they speak to you personally? Here are some of my thoughts. I am the bread of life. Just as I need food to sustain physical life, I need Jesus for eternal life. I am the light of the world. If there's darkness in my life, I can find light by turning to Christ. I am the door. Jesus is the way that I enter into God's presence. I am the good shepherd. When I need guidance and direction, the Savior is there for me. I am the resurrection and the life. All trials I face, even death itself, will find resolution through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to salvation. It is only found in Jesus. I am the vine. If I am to bear fruit, I need to be connected to Christ. Another theme in John is that Christ replaces Jewish festivals. In earlier classes, we've talked about the Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, and Hanukkah. Each of these passages we've discussed comes from the Gospel of John, where we see an emphasis on Jesus in connection with these holidays. It's one method John uses to help us see that Jesus is the way. We might say that although he demonstrates it in a different way, John has the same theme we talked about in Matthew. Jesus Christ is everything. Today, we've done a brief overview of three of the gospel accounts. Matthew shows us Jesus, the son of David, who has come to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. He's a new Moses who validates and extends Moses' teachings. In Luke, we see a focus on women, helping the poor, and outreach to all, including and perhaps especially the marginalized. John shows us a divine Christ who has come down from heaven to save us. We'll continue to see these themes develop throughout the rest of this course. I hope that these literary portraits of Jesus will help us connect with him and apply his words as we dive deep into the gospel accounts in our next several classes together. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniiicom slash seekingjesus. We hope to see you there.